You're on Team Human, Conscious Intervention in the Machine, coming to you alive from the Impact Festival in Utrecht, Holland. This is where we challenge the operating systems driving our society, reveal the embedded codes, and share strategies for sustainable living, economic justice, and preservation of the quirky nooks and crannies that make people so much more than mere programs. This is where the conscious beats the automatic, an intervention by people on behalf of people. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today, designer, activist, academic, and author of Low-Tech Radical Design by Radical Indigenism, Julia Watts. But before we bring her out, I thought I'd share a little something with you about the Team Human project. Team Human began, gosh, years ago when I was on a panel with a pretty famous tech bro, a guy who believes that technology will quickly outpace human beings on the uh, evolutionary ladder. Uh, You know, he believes in both the exponential growth of the market and exponential growth of technology, which means that human systems may collapse, but technology and robots and AIs can continue on without us. And his main argument was that human beings should gracefully pass the evolutionary torch to our technological successors. And I argued against that. I said, no, human beings are weird and wonderful, and we can embrace paradox and hold multiple ideas in our heads at the same time. We don't need to resolve everything to a one or a zero. You know, we can watch weird movies and, and not understand them and still experience them as pleasurable. And I, I kind of made a heartfelt plea that we create a place for human beings in the digital future rather than just gracefully accepting our extinction. And he said, oh, Rushkoff, you're only saying that because you're human, right? Like it was hubris. And that's when I said, fine, guilty. I'm on team human. And the more I talked about team human and the idea that being human is not uh, some individual battle for survival of the fittest, but a collaboration, the more evidence I started to find in all corners that evolution is not a competition at all, but an advancement of different ways of collaborating, uh, the development of different forms and more advanced forms of symbiosis, either with other humans or with other species. And when you look at nature, you see so many examples uh, of things that were taught are competition, but are actually collaboration. In school, I was taught that trees compete to reach the sunlight. But when I actually read about trees, I find out that the taller ones that are reaching the sun end up sharing their nutrients with the smaller trees through the soil, which is not just dirt, but is a living matrix of mycelia that take a service fee for passing the nutrients back and forth. And I actually read Darwin and find out, oh my gosh, he's not talking about competition. He's marveling at the way that different species can collaborate and cooperate with one another. So really what I wanted to find out and part of what my whole team journey, team human journey has been about was to find out, you know, where was it that we got, that we got off track? And, you know, you could point to a lot of different moments in history from the beginning of agriculture, or the beginning of sedentary living, but where things really seemed to kick into place was really the late middle ages and the, the beginnings of industrialism that we started to look at progress 
really through the lens of capitalism and colonialism as some kind of competition of these different nation states to extract more resources in less time from all of their colonies. So we came to understand progress as a form of colonization, which territory are you getting and racing to get more of them? And we ended up kind of adopting a, a unidirectional arrow for looking at time and progress and the future, that what you need to do over time is accumulate power, accumulate stuff, and grow exponentially, colonize land, colonize people. And now that we're in a digital media environment, it's just uh, all the more apparent because now we're not just colonizing brown people in other places, we're colonizing ourselves. We're colonizing human time and, and human attention. But what's making me hopeful is that digital might actually be different. That in a digital age, we end up with something called cybernetics. Cybernetics is really a form of feedback. Everything you do comes back to you. You start feeling and recognizing the impact of our activities. The, the lines, these unidirectional lines become circles again. Karma begins expressing itself and we long for a way out. You know, in the, in the Elon Musk way, we long for a way out of all this karma by building rocket ships and getting off the planet, or we long for a way back to the garden. Maybe uh, go to Burning Man or take a lot of ayahuasca and find your way back to some lost history. But I think the real path, the, the path that I'm advocating on Team Human is to retrieve the systems and ideas we left behind, the things that we left for dead when they were actually the most living, circular, and advanced mechanisms for human and interspecies flourishing that really have ever been devised. So Team Human I mean, us as Team Human is not characterized by our ability to dominate nature. Team Human is really characterized by our ability to steward nature, to move back into a symbiotic call and response interaction with the living environment in which we're all a part. You know, this is not primitive, not at all, but highly advanced, especially compared with the, the tractor and cement one size fits all simplicity of industrial capitalism. It's time to retrieve the genuinely complex approaches of our ancestors before we oversimplify our world beyond the capacity to sustain life itself. That's what it means to be on Team Human. And that's why we're speaking today with the designer, activist, academic, and author of a book called Low Tech Design by Radical Indigenism, a beautiful volume and journey of discovery, really, bringing these wonders of engineering by indigenous peoples who are practicing a form of engineering foreign to most of us in the West, because instead of killing and burning things for it to work, it collaborates with living systems in a practice of mutual flourishing. It's my pleasure to welcome Julia Watson. Thank you so hey. much, Douglas. Thank you. Thanks so much for being here. Uh, obviously, most of what I was talking about was inspired by uh, reading your, your latest book. It's a, uh, gosh, it's such a trip to go through it page by page by page as a reader. I mean, because I've had intuitions of these things. You know, you see movies about Stonehenge and go, oh, well, you know, 
people from a long time ago, new sorts of all this weird stuff. But to see it not as old rocks, but as living systems that, that are sustaining people and ecosystems to this day, it's uh, more powerful than any psychedelic trip I've had, actually, was, was <laughs> reading your book. So, <laughs> so thank you for that. I thought maybe for people to get some orientation into what it is I'm even referring to here, maybe you could share a little bit about um, your journey. In other words, what was your sort of first exposure to indigenous technologies and how did you begin to pursue this whole uh, line of inquiry? I began this whole journey when I was second year architecture student. And one of these courses that I took in second year architecture was a seminar course. And so this course really exposed this idea of what different Indigenous communities around Australia were doing in terms of their built environment, their infrastructures, the organization of their communities, and looking into this whole idea of Indigenous technologies. And that really changed the way I saw architecture and the built environment. And I think it really projected me on a course to look at how we can live symbolically with our nature and, and with our built environment in a way that I didn't see in the places I was living or the workplaces I was in or the cities I was really connected with so much. And then what did you see first? Did you just like take a boat and start going to places? I mean, how did you, how did you start to experience these places you know, for real and live? So after I finished studying architecture, I studied landscape architecture and I got really interested in this community in Borneo, which are called the Penan people. And they're a forest dwelling people. They were having a lot of issues with the government and they were trying to stand up for their territories. They were being displaced from their territories in the forest by palm oil plantations and by people who were trying to deforest their indigenous territory. And there was one particular environmentalist that was writing about this community. His name was Bruno Manser. He was a Swiss guy. And I started following his work, got really interested in his work. About a year after I was following it, he went missing. He was walking through the jungle and disappeared. And it's still thought that he was killed by mercenaries but that were from the Malaysian government because of his work that he was doing this with this particular tribe. And I just wanted to go to Borneo. I was you know, 22. I was on my way to London, as all Australians were at that time after graduating from university. And I decided I would go through Borneo for a month before going to London to look at this landscape, to sort of see what had been going on there, to look at this heart of Borneo, it's called, this incredible diptera forest. And that's where it all began. I found this community of the Penan people. They were living in pretty terrible conditions in a government encampment that they had been forced to live in on the side of the river and spent the day with this community and just had this moment where, you know, I became really interested in like, why is this happening? And I spent a lot of time um, since then traveling around the world and looking at um, different spaces and, and different ways that cultures had started to connect with different indigenous landscapes. And so that's kind of where all of that began. And then maybe, I guess, we should share some of these examples. I know it's, it's hard to get them without actually reading the book and looking at the pictures and all, but 
I mean, some of them are just so profound. Like if you could describe maybe that watershed reconstruction in Bali, it uses what you would think of as like advanced hydro engineering principles and filtration and recycling and if yeah. you can sort of explain how it works so people can get some grasp, but this is not just digging little rivets in the ground, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, there's, there's an interesting thing that happens is because there's always this big question of scale and, you know, how could Indigenous communities, how have they really changed vast scales or how do these technologies work at scale? Because we're always in the present, looking at the scale of the cities that we have and then saying, well, what is the comparison here between the huge scale of cities and the density of cities and these, the communities that you're looking at and have been talking about in low tech? So this particular system is almost the scale of the island of Borneo. It's definitely in the mountainous area and it's a, you know, more than a thousand year old system. And the whole mountains have been terraformed at the scale of incredibly huge watersheds to basically yeah. take in vast amounts of water that are coming down the mountain from the volcanoes, bringing with them all these amazing minerals and nutrients from the volcanic soil on these mountain peaks. And so to take advantage of all these incredible minerals, there are these huge terraced environments which take in water that are timed by the release of water from their water temples. So they're controlled actually by priests, which open up and allow water to travel into these large-scale systems. And so if you look along a mountainside, there'll be multiple watersheds going from the top of the mountains all the way down to the lower mountains that are all sharing water as they come in through the monsoon rains. And so it's taking advantage of these natural conditions. They don't need any fertilizer because of this. They don't need any additions for the nutrients. And then another way, this sort of system used to be called the, the rice bowl of Southeast Asia because it was so incredibly productive, but it's also incredibly biodiverse. So there's all these different biodiverse relationships that happen from bringing in ducks to the water buffalo that works in these systems, to the insects, to the fish, to everything that actually is created within this one system that provides rice for the indigenous, the, the subak farmers. And the system also helps prevent flooding. It also sequesters carbon. It um, has these sort of multiple ecosystem relationships. But one really incredible innovation was that when the, the season of pests come in, they flood all the watershed, these huge watersheds at the same time across huge vast scales so there's no food for the pests to eat. So it becomes a natural pesticide as well. So they've figured out all these really incredible symbiotic techniques that you know what we use for fertilizer and for pesticides there's no need for any of the incorporation of any of these industrial processes in any of these systems. Right. Or for another fun one, you could talk about the forest islands in Brazil. How did they make these things? I mean, what are they for and how did they make them? I'm, I mean, it's really interesting because you did, in your introduction, you did mention the use of, of fire, of burning, but you're referencing the burning of fossil fuels, right? The introduction of fire and the use of fire or pyrotechnology is actually something that's super common when you're talking about nature-based cultures and, and indigenous technologies. So you're talking about the Kayapo people who live in the Amazon and they have an area that is the size of Kentucky. It's the largest contiguous area of area that's been preserved in the Amazon basin. 
so they have these islands called the Apete. And what they are, are they're islands within the rainforest that they use really slow, really cool fires. They burn these fires into the landscape, into the forest to clear ground. And then they create an agricultural village. And so we call this forest farming. And you see forest farming at really huge scales all across the world. There's lots of different communities that employ agroforestry. And so the primary sort of initiator for these islands is the use of pyrotechnology, is the use of burning. And the burning actually, it makes the soil really, really healthy. It it introduces charcoal and ash into the soil. And then there's a layering system of plants that are based upon different canopy heights. And all these all these plants are actually food or medicinal or for timber or building resources. So within that particular forest, there might be 2,000 species. The Kayapo are actually introducing another 900 species. And they're planting these forests in different areas. So they have their village gardens. They have their medicinal gardens. They have their war gardens, which they, they grow gardens in the time of scarcity when there's war or when there's issues with that might compromise the the food security in their primary garden. So they've got all these and they're all spaced out into different areas. And then they'll have these gardens working for a period of time and then they'll rest them and they'll create new ones. And then the life cycle of the apete after they leave and that particular garden takes on its own life. And, And so there's these footprints of these apete forest gardens all the way through the Amazon. It's like the only way that a a Westerner could really understand it or relate to it is go, oh, well, so you have a drugstore over there and you put a bunch of stuff in stock in the storeroom. So you have it in an emergency. You've got an arsenal over here with your gunpowder and your guns and you lock it, and guard it. And then maybe you get a grocery store over there and a big freezer section to keep stuff. And it's like, it has that function, but in the opposite way. It's like these living storehouses, but they're not storage. They're, it's almost like we have this, uh, uh, we understand everything in the West, like it's got to get it on a hard drive somewhere, you know, and store it. They're understanding everything's in RAM. Everything's a living, uh, a part of a living available system. Yeah. The extractive as opposed to like the regenerative or, or the reciprocal. Right. Because you think if it's, if it has to generate in real time, it's almost like we don't have faith it'll be there. I mean, yeah. I get it reminded of, of like the Bible when it's like God keeps saying, look, I'm going to rain down mana on you. Don't worry. And the people that hoard the mana, it like turns to, turns to worms or something and they don't get more the next day. And there's this sense that nature tries to reassure us. It's okay. We're going to, the plants are going to keep coming out of the ground. The more you try to lock it down, the worse it's going to be. That's the really big difference is that there's incredible amounts of complexity. And like you spoke about in your introduction, the sophistication of the systems is because they're incredibly adaptive because they respond really naturally to environments, climatic extremes, to weather conditions, to changes in soil, to changes in things like pH. And so they're immediately responsive because they're all living in symbiosis and combination with one another. And that's something that we've kind of removed, I mean, we removed it within manufacturing and industrial processes. That's in a whole different category. If we're talking about climate change and climate mitigation and strategies to to deal with climate crisis and environmental extremes, which are active, which are constantly coming in and moving out and shifting and changing, these systems were 
always based on those types of conditions. And that's the really opposite extreme that we don't really, we don't really have the facilities, nor do we build those types of adaptive, predictive understandings into the way that we explore economics or, or built environments or computer technologies. Right. And part of it's a, it's a lack of trust in things that are changing. You know, the example, I almost hesitate to bring it up because I don't want people to want to go travel there and ruin it. But um, there's the example of that living root bridge in India, yeah. I guess. And it's the opposite of what we would think of as a bridge that we're going to go across. It's that the people there helped, they trained the roots to tie themselves into these beautiful footbridges, these, these complicated things. And, and I was looking, you know, you described the process with charts, these kind of tubes that they made to, to encourage roots to grow in certain directions and wrap around. And I mean, a modern bridge builder would be so anxious looking at, wait a minute, you're depending on life to do this for you. It's like, wait a minute, the way you build a bridge is you get rid of all the life and stick some steel girders in the ground and lock it down. So you look at a project like that, that living that living root bridge. And what I think, again, as a Westerner is like, all right, how does someone become an indigenous engineer? Do they have specialists? Are there certain people there who just think up how we're going to make this thing? Or is it a, a, a general slow process? Is it more instinctual? You know, it's like in the West, you want to think, oh, you look at indigenous people building a root bridge that's beyond the technological capacity of anybody in the West to be able to do that and the patients. And we want to think, well, it's kind of like a beehive or the way a, a beaver would make a dam, that it's some, like these people have some natural instinct to be like that with nature. And maybe there's some instinct, you know, there's some intuition in it, but there's actual engineering and trial and error and there's knowledge that goes in there. I guess I'm curious as to what's the cultural preconditions to innovate on this level. We're talking about two different types of technologies, if you want to talk about a comparison. So one technology, which we're talking about steel girders and, and, and the creation of a bridge in a contemporary context in the West, we know that you know, those come from a lot of money, from extractive industries, from unlimited resources from unlimited amounts of energy to create the material then to like put the material together and to and to create that complete system and that's kind of the technology that we're used to technologies that have infinite opportunities the technology when you're looking at a technology that is like the living bridge that's a technology that's in a situation where bridges that are made the most available material would be wood, but bridges that are made of wood rot within a couple of seasons. So you need to create a living bridge because it won't rot because it's alive. And so out of necessity, out of scarcity for any other types of solutions, this was evolved and invented. It actually came from Lao. Initially, it's thought, and it was migrated by the Lao people who moved up into this region about a thousand years ago and brought this type of technology. So you also see that these technologies are born of specific environments. So this is an area of the world that has some of the highest rainfall. So they have incredible conditions for growth and they have incredible conditions for rot as well, wood rot. And you can still create a steel bridge in that environment. In fact, there is, but it's really hard to get to that environment. I've been there. It's 8,000 stairs to walk down to get down into the villages. It's 8,000 stairs to get back up. It's really hard to get material into that space. So that's 
another condition that makes it really difficult. And so the, you've got these different types of constraints. So usually you find that these technologies are actually born out of these extreme conditions or constraints. And that's why they have inbuilt the sustainability and these take advantage of different types of mechanisms and understandings of their environments. I mean, it reminds me of, a, it's a terrible example maybe, but it reminds me of theater. That when I would do theater in a big budget theater, when you have a giant stage and all the tech and everything you need, it's really hard to innovate. But when you're stuck yeah. in the basement with like pillars and no lights and this, it's like, huh, how am I going to do a Macbeth in this? And you yeah. end up with the very most innovative, interesting kind of bottom-up solutions that you wouldn't get otherwise. To your point, like there are experts as well within different communities. In the Kanat system, you'll get the expert person who is digging the, the Kanat, which is the underground aqueduct, which you find in the Middle East. In the Subak system, which is in Bali, you'll get this person who is the expert. Not only do what you see on the surface of the terraces, there's also the whole island is honeycombed with water channels to convey water from the top of the mountains down to these Subak watersheds. So there are expert diggers as well. There are different roles and engineers that are experts that have learned over time that are con continually innovating. It's not just a, a static process. It's really dynamic as well. And not to speak to as an expert on all different technologies or speak for any of the cultures and communities about their expertise. But you know, for example, the bridge, there's a guy that I speak to pretty regularly who has a foundation called there called the Living Bridge Foundation Morningstar. And he's a young Kasi and he is really trying to forward and, and teach and protect this culture of building the living bridges. And they're innovating that type of technology using bamboo as well as betel nut. And so it's really alive and it's constantly changing, but it is an incredible expertise as well. But it's specific too. I mean, because there's a kind of a prevailing view of indigenous people that, well, maybe there's a shaman that they stick out there and a couple of warriors, but everybody else basically has the same general knowledge. And when you look yeah. at, at feats like they've accomplished, like, oh no, there's specialists. There's people who've dedicated their lives to understanding how to do this. And then they pass it on to someone else over a period of 30 or 40 years. Yeah. And, and there's specific roles. There's multiple different types of roles. And, you know, it's really interesting often, you know, these roles are passed between generations as well. And there's, you know, for example, in the East Calcutta wetlands, this incredible sewage wastewater treatment system on the fringes of Calcutta. You can't just join this community. It's four gen fourth generation fishermen who actually control and clean the waters of the city of Calcutta through these incredible 300 fish ponds that they've established for growing food. Primarily it's for food, but it's also cleaning all the water that's coming out of the city. I mean, something you keep coming back to in, in the book and that's sort of, you know, dear to my heart is the, the way that, that survival of the fittest is really is such a false notion. I mean, and you talk about the survival of the most symbiotic, which to me is yeah. the, the team players are the ones that win. Do you feel like the cultures that you were with, did they understand this basic, this principle of evolution? I'm not sure. I've never directly asked the questions. I don't know if I can speak for, for anybody, but you know, the, the idea of survival of the most symbiotic, that's an idea that was written about by Lynn Margulis in like nine, late 1980s. Mm -hmm. And she talks about this, you know, this transitioning to really understanding symbiosis. I do know that a lot of the technologies, when you look at them, 
with this idea that it is about cooperation between human and non-human species. So, for example, the Kayapo. The Kayapo live with bees. And so bees are actually kept in houses. Bees are kept beside houses. It's thought that there's a relationship between bees and other insects that assist the Kayapo with gardening. These apete gardens during festivals, mothers and children, or the mothers will paint the children and paint themselves in the markings of insects and bees. There's a relationship that the Kayapo recognize between themselves and between bees and this idea of being incredibly social and cooperative. So not to speak for anybody when I haven't had the conversation, but I think if you were to look at that idea that basing relationships and an understanding of socialization upon a relationship of bees and the relationship that bees have coordination. I think that you can, you can say that, yes, there is an understanding that there's coordination and, and survival based upon symbiotic relation and cooperative relationships. And it's very different to the way that we think, which is, you know, the, there's a different ideology based upon sort of economic drivers, primarily economic and power drivers for the individual than the collective that is the dominant right. Western idea. Yeah, well, how do you know you own the forest if you haven't clear cut it, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's sort of, <laughs> I often find myself want, wanting to figure out who to blame. You know? and, and in your book, you do talk some about the, the intellectuals of the European Enlightenment as being, you know, perhaps, I mean, it was Francis Bacon. I always quote him. It was Francis Bacon who said that empirical science would allow us to take nature by the forelock, hold her down and submit her to our will. You know, And it's like, okay, there's the enlightenment understanding of science and technology, right? Yeah. Just treatment of nature as something to, to be overcome. Have, have you kind of put your finger on where or when Western society, where did we go wrong? When did we, how did we get like this? I mean, very specifically in the way that I look at the, uh, the work of the built environment, I say that there was a moment in time when we talk about the Enlightenment and you talk about the Middle Ages, it could be subjective as to what you want to look at and what area you're focusing on. But there was a time when people said, okay, this is technology. This is the way we're going to consider technology and move it forward. And it was primarily written language. In Europe, uh, white men who were, you know, had levels of power and education and, and government in a, in a Western sense that were saying, this is the way we're going to think about technology. And this is the way we're going to lead ourselves into a different reality and a different future. And, you know, there are many reasons why that happened. There was colonialism, there was empires, there was different ways of thinking about progress. There was displacement. There was a lot of stuff going on, but there's also a very specific idea about technology and development and progress. And so that is something that we still have, and that's a legacy that we still bear. And so I think that that period of time, that's the period of time where we can see the marking of the Anthropocene as well, which mm -hmm. is the idea that we can actually physically, if we were going to do a bore sample, down into the ground and say, we can specifically identify moments where we can see the impact of human beings on the scale of the entire earth and for the erasure of environments. That we, that's when we can start to see those moments occurring. And what I think happened as well, which you know, led us to this point in time, is there was a consideration of hundreds, potentially thousands of indigenous technologies or local technologies that were just never considered. They had never been made aware 
were not really the dominant mode of thinking and they were just not considered and have been since then intentionally displaced, erased and removed as we've seen also the displacement and, and erasure of Indigenous culture around the world. So these things are all really closely tied into one another. And then you get to the place we're at now. And, you know, I was sort of using cybernetics as a metaphor for the way that people are becoming aware that, oh my gosh, you know, we're killing the planet. We're all going to die. And of course, some of them, the solution is to double down and build a rocket ship and <laughs> get off the thing. But even, yeah. even the well-meaning solutions feel tech bro solutionist to me. Totally. And they're very top down. Like, let's throw iron filings in the ocean. Let's shoot sulfur in the, in the, yeah. into space. We, we don't solve top-down problems with top-down solutions, right? It's yeah. a whole other yeah, thing I, has to happen. I'm not sort of the person. I, I taught high-tech systems in the built environment. I've, I've researched mm. low-tech systems in the built environment, these local technologies, which is the meaning behind low-tech. And, you know, there, it's not to disregard and say we're not going to need all of these solutions. Completely disregarding, erasing, removing, and destroying a vast number of technologies that, that are in operation that assist biodiversity that actually maintain about 80% of the biodiversity that exists on earth. If we continue on this cycle, like that's just madness. And by not recognizing that when, while we're trying to move towards environmentalism and protection of the earth and climate-based solutions to not recognize that climate-based technologies that are allowing communities to live within their environments really symbiotically, but while increasing biodiversity, while also fishing, while also developing, while also having economics and all the other systems that lead to a healthy society, those systems can also lead to a healthy environment, that that's possible. And so there's a huge mindset uh, and a shift to say, like, how do we think about these things? And, and I talk about this idea in the book that we're really obsessed with biodiversity extinction and that we're in the sixth mass grade extinction and the loss of biodiversity is phenomenal and an unprecedented rate, which we don't even know. But we don't talk about the loss of technology. 21st century, its greatest loss won't be biodiversity as we all talk about. It's going to be also technologies and the technologies and the cultures protect the biodiversities. And so the tech, where while we're sort of obsessed with these high tech solutions, like you know, shooting clouds up to the up to the atmosphere to stop global warming, we're never going to shoot a big enough cloud that's going to reverse a global oscillation like El Nino, or to bring seasonal rain sooner, or these really vast systems. It's just not going to happen. And so to think about all these systems that are already in place and all these technologies that already exist that are threatened, that are unrecognized, that are being erased, to think about how they could be catalyzed and scaled up and by assisting communities and by you know really championing these ideas, that's going to be an incredible way to globally think about mitigation of climate change. Right. But I mean, as you say, this is a quote from the book, we're now at a crossroads where we can either continue a narrow view of technology informed by our distance from nature, or we can acknowledge that this is just one way and not the only way for humans to live. Designers yeah. today understand the urgency of reducing humanity's negative environmental impact, yet perpetuate the same mythology 
that relies on exploiting nature. I guess that's part of why you're teaching, right? That's why you're, why you're at university. It's to drop in this other, this other approach. Obviously, it must influence your own design work in philosophy as well, yeah? Yeah, I mean, a lot of the work that I do is very much championed by this idea of using biodiversity as a building block. If we're doing a project that's looking at a competition in you know, China, in Shenzhen, we're looking at what is the past landscape and the systems that have been removed in the last 40 years? Why aren't those systems that help flood prevention, that increase biodiversity, that allow for different agricultural communities, like different types of urban farmings or urban agricultures, why don't we think of embedding those into our cities? Like, Why, why do we continue with this idea of erasure and this idea of hard scapes and hard technologies and high technologies like that doesn't really you know encompass this idea that 95 percent of you know the global population really can't afford the technologies that a lot of us in the design community are actually talking about most of the time i mean another argument that you make which is one i find myself having to make a lot when i'm i'm here arguing for team human a lot of environmentalists say why are you arguing for team human humans are are the problem not the solution, just get rid of them. You know, and you talk yeah. about the conservation movement that looks at, it's like, let's conserve this piece of wilderness and just keep all humans out of it, which is almost the same mindset as let's keep nature out of the city. Let's not let anything grow yeah. on this piece of cement. Oh, no, let's not let the humans in that rainforest. Yeah. That the, the solution set is somehow, humans are not intrinsically pollution or destructive. Yeah, no, I mean, the conservation movement, there's an incredible uh, organization, Survival International. If you follow them on, on Twitter, there's constant and continuous talk about what is happening in terms of conservation and the removal and displacement of indigenous and local peoples from their lands. And it happens under the guise of conservation. And it's not, you know, not all conservation efforts. It's some conservation efforts. But in the history of conservation, there is a legacy of removal of indigenous people from their territories, you know, the, the, the conservation movement was thought of as a recreational movement. It was thought of as a movement to like protect nature and remove people from that landscape, these pristine landscapes. We're in a, we're in a really different place now where, you know, where we're saying that these natural environments like the Great Barrier Reef, it's protected for its outstanding universal value, but we all know the Great Barrier Reef is incredibly threatened and dying. So what are we actually going to be protecting in the end? And why wouldn't we talk with indigenous leaders and indigenous communities who have been protecting those landscapes and who understand the systems and this is their indigenous territories why wouldn't we and and have you know incredibly sophisticated land management techniques why wouldn't that be something that we're actually exploring as a means to understand how we can better manage landscapes and and how we can really start to think about the environmental movement and environmental diet design in a different way it's a good question I mean, <laughs> partly because we're stubborn, partly because we're I don't give up to apology. You know, I think the thing is to be vocal about the type of future that you want to exist within and the future that you want your children to exist within and your children's children to exist within. And you have to demand the type of future that you want to recognize. And so I think really thinking about what you support, what you buy, being educated and and really trying to understand and lift the veil from all the systems and the ideas and and understandings that we're fed and be critical in trying to 
understand and operate in a way that you're in control of the creation of the future that you want to see for, for you and for your children and beyond. I love that because it's really, it's standing up, you know, it, it's standing up in, a, in an upright way and accepting that you will be noticed if you do that. You know, that there's a little bit of risk in standing up and saying, this is the future I want. I'm going to articulate it and I'm going to work toward it. And that's, yeah. you know, the, the book that you wrote. I mean, I just want to thank you first for being on Team Human and second for your work, you know, and giving voice to people who are, boy, they're doing something in a way that's not like the kind of architects that we know in the West who will yeah. publicize what they're doing. These are people who are just doing it in the most sacred and circular ways that I've ever seen. And for you to give voice and create images to tell their story is really a, a gift to us all. Thank you. And, it, and it's really about saying that we need to recognize other voices. And there are so many other voices that can be recognized and we need to begin that acknowledgement. Thanks for being on Team Human. Patreon subscribers get free access to events and our Discord channel, and they get the bonus episode every other week with people like Timothy Leary and Terrence McKenna and, and David Lynch, all sorts of stuff that we've been pulling out of the archives. So please do support us if you can. Team Human is produced by Josh Chapdelin. It's edited by Luke Robert Mason. Our community manager is Michael Bass, and I'm Douglas Rushkoff. This was a special production of Team Human live from the Impact Festival in Utrecht, Holland. Thanks for being on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps.